You're listening to Wiretap with Jonathan Goldstein on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. Today's episode, A Face from the Past. After Janice moved out, Mendelbaum spent his free time leaning in doorways. The kitchen doorway, the living room doorway, the bedroom doorway. And usually he wore his ex-wife's bathrobe, a takeout menu in one pocket, loose M&Ms in the other. According to his therapist, this was a normal part of the grieving process. A doorway is the right place for a man on the threshold of a new life, Dr. Cohn had said, and Mendelbaum had nodded enthusiastically, wondering all the while if he'd indeed read the parking signs outside the therapist's office correctly, or whether at that very moment his car was being towed. Each week, Dr. Cohn spoke of which stage in the grieving process Mendelbaum was at. This is par for stage three, he'd say, or... This is classic stage four. Some sessions, Mendelbaum hopped forward two stages, only to slip backwards three the next. He did not know from what handbook the therapist was getting all this, but he longed for his sadness to end and his new life to begin. And so, after a particularly good session filled with tears and insight, he'd declare, that's the last of my grief, it's all out but his therapist would shake his head sagely and tell him, not yet. His ex-wife's biggest complaint had been how all Mendelbaum ever wanted to do was watch TV. But now that she was gone, he didn't feel like watching any TV at all. He wanted to do nothing, neither stand, nor sit, nor lie. And so he leaned and it was in the midst of one such marathon lean that his mother phoned. I'm sending over roly-poly, she said. This was how her phone calls went. No hello, no how are you, just I'm sending over a bunt cake. I'm sending over rugelach. The delivery man was Benelbaum's father, a retired girdle salesman who now spent his days transporting endless care packages of bizarrely named pastries to anyone in the mother's loop. As best Mendelbaum could tell, it was a large loop, composed mainly of shut-ins and distant relatives. There were some former postmen, too, and butchers and old neighbors, basically anyone the mother had ever known for however long at any point in her life. His father called it The Root, And for all Mendelbaum knew, there were hundreds on the route, all crouched and expectant, peering through vertical blinds, awaiting the arrival of Mendelbaum's father and his bags of sweetness. I'm sending over roly-poly, is what his mother told him, and just as she was about to hang up, no goodbye, he answered as he had been lately. Please don't. And even though he'd said it with the grim resolve he'd practiced in his therapist's office, It was, of course, no use. Your father's already on his way, she said. On such occasions, the car horn would honk twice and Mendelbaum, hating to keep his poor father waiting even a second longer than necessary, would barrel down the stairs to the station wagon, 
whereupon the old man would roll down the window, hand him a sweetly scented lumpy trash bag, nod sadly, and throw the car into drive. On this day, though, Mendelbaum wouldn't have minded his father coming up and staying a while. It was Saturday morning, and he wasn't excited by the prospect of another weekend alone. Your father never liked her, his mother had said months earlier when he delivered news of the divorce. The words had stung. He'd held dear the memory of how at their wedding the old man, high on salty dogs, had grabbed Janice's face with both hands, and as Neil Sadaka sang Laughter in the Rain, had kissed the top of her head with the rapture of a biblical blessing. During the marriage's roughest spots, Mendelbaum had held this image close to his heart. That his father might have actively disliked Janice, stung especially since the man seemed to hold no opinion on anything. When asked how his meal was, he would nod sadly and say, What does it matter? In five years I'll be dead anyway. He went where his wife sent him and thought what she told him to think. He hadn't made a decision, held an opinion since 1972, the year they were married. That was love, something he, Mendelbaum, could not seem to wrangle. But for him, there was roly-poly, sweet, restorative roly-poly, on its way and trash bag wrapped, just what a 36-year-old divorced man needed, a mother's cookies. A forceful knock at the door. His father must need the toilet. Forgive me, the old man would say on such occasions, his belt buckle already undone by the time Mendelbaum opened the door. One hand would hold his pants up, while the other would thrust a medicine ball-sized lump of cinnamon babka at Mendelbaum's chest. I must make water, he'd say. Bathroom door flung wide open to the universe, Mendelbaum would listen as his father extolled the virtues of the Creator. These moments were the only clues his father gave of being capable of any pleasure at all. Don't tell your mother I was up, he'd call out while washing his hands. She likes to keep me to the schedule. But when Mendelbaum answered the door this day, it was not his father in the midst of a hunched water dance, but a short, soccer ball-shaped man in a tracksuit. My God, said the man, such a big boy now. For Mendelbaum, it was like laying eyes upon a famous person who existed only in your dreams. Mendelbaum was speechless. Not waiting to be invited in, the little man waddled through the door and had himself a look around. Stinks in here, he said, sniffing about. We'll have to air the joint out. Mendelbaum was never any good in real time, and just then would have liked a second or two to process, to slow things down and steady himself. In almost 30 years, the little man had hardly changed at all. A bit whiter, a bit balder, a bit fatter, but not by much. Roland Pulowski, a.k.a. Uncle Roly-Poly, was in Mendelbaum's home. Roly-Poly Pulowski. Mendelbaum's parents had always referred to him as uncle, but the relation had never been clear. Was he an uncle through marriage, or just a bachelor friend of his father's, a co-worker at the girdle factory who ate Sabbath lunch with them? 
Pulowski was as intimate a part of his childhood as a teddy bear, fur-worn bald from too many hugs. Seeing him made him feel vulnerable and slightly embarrassed, like he was seeing his own naked hairy bum on an arena jumbotron. Your mother sends me, Pulowski said. She tells me you're feeling blue. Mendelbaum stood staring, when suddenly, Pulowski, no time for amenities, a heart bursting with love and nostalgia, leapt at him. Mendelbaum sprung backwards by reflex, and Pulowski took chase, while making yipping sounds, fingers straining in desperate search of Mendelbaum's ribs, he sprinted after him with surprising speed, around the coffee table they went, into the empty dining room, back into the living room, and bouncing onto the couch. Stop that! Mendelbaum managed to scream, the words coming out high-pitched and hysterical. Huh, still ticklish, Pulowski stated. Where did you come from, Mendelbaum demanded. And what are you doing here? Right now, Pulowski said, let's focus on you. They both stood on the sofa facing each other, saying nothing and trying to catch their breath, until Pulowski, extending an index finger, asked Mendelbaum to pull it, and Mendelbaum refused. Pulowski removed a student's knapsack from his back and threw it onto the couch. I'll be good right here, he said. All I need is a feather pillow if you have. I brought with a blanket. While he unpacked, Mendelbaum slid out of the room to phone his mother. What is Roly-Poly doing here, he asked in a whisper. Don't be mad, his mother said. Your father thought you could use a friend. I have friends, he hissed. And while this was technically true, they really weren't any great shakes, all of them having let him down in one way or another in the aftermath of the divorce. I haven't seen this man since I'm eight, Mendelbaum said. Was he, is he really my uncle? He's on our route, his mother said. In the background, Mendelbaum could hear the banging of pots and pans. A vague memory stirred, Pulowski's quick little footsteps getting louder as they marched down his childhood apartment building hallway, his mother chanting, roly-poly, roly-poly, and he, Mendelbaum, joining in, stomping his foot, clanging a pot. It was exciting, a holiday feeling. Had some dormant part of his psyche been chanting that refrain lately? Had he himself conjured roly-poly forth? A shy, only child, Mendelbaum was often too self-conscious to join the other neighborhood children, and so was left to sit on the curb, alone, sharpening popsicle sticks against the asphalt, or hiding in his bedroom, sad little kid bags under his eyes, watching TV on a small black-and-white TV set. But when roly-poly came to visit, he was drawn out and fussed over, Roly-Poly marveled over his ability to name the entire cast of Laverne and Shirley, was mesmerized when he sang the theme song to the Jeffersons. Pulowski had been as much a part of his weekends as Saturday morning cartoons or Chinese takeout on Sunday night. And then one day, Roly-Poly had just disappeared. What became of him? Mendelbaum asked his mother, his mouth drifting from the telephone receiver. Where has he been all these years? All these years, his mother said. Don't ask about all these years. That poor man. In all these years, not one single bit of luck. 
His mother reeled off a list of Job-like misfortunes, cataracts and lost billfolds, scalded by soup, let go from jobs, a tiny basement apartment, a limp, a poodle named Franklin, also a limp. Mother, he said, I cherish my privacy, and I am not at all comfortable with this man in my house. He never had children of his own, his mother said. You were the closest he had to a son. When we told him how worried we were about you since the divorce, nothing could stop him. Mendelbaum hung up the phone and went looking for a feather pillow. His therapist would not approve. Pulowski had packed a never-ending supply of foodstuffs into his modest bindle, which he used to prepare them a lunch of pizza, salad, and what appeared to be some kind of homemade pinkish-orange wine. It was delicious, and the first home-cooked meal Mendelbaum had had in months. When it was over, Pulowski leaned forward in his chair and made as though to pinch the tip of Mendelbaum's nose. Got your nose, Pulowski said. Very cute said Mendelbaum. Someone steals your nose clean off your face and you just sit there? asked Pulowski. Aren't you even going to try to get it back? Have you no fight left? Boy, this dame sure did a number on you. She is not a dame, said Mendelbaum. Her name is Janice, and I loved her very deeply, very deeply. I still do. Forget I said anything, Mr. Sensitive. Mendelbaum began stacking the dishes, and while he did, Pulowski flipped through a stapled pile of paper placemats he used as a day planner. He had the day all laid out for them. Ice cream parlor, comic store, magic shop, and then roller skating in the basement of the old post office. I know a security guard who will let us in, said Pulowski. The floors are like chicken grease. It hadn't been since Mendelbaum was a kid that someone had tried to make him feel like a kid. Back then, though, it never took. He was too high-strung, too worried about the future. But now, at the end of their afternoon together, when Pulowski asked him if he'd enjoyed himself, Mendelbaum was able to answer, in a tremulous, tentative voice, that he had a little. When they arrived home, Mendelbaum offered Pulowski slippers and a bathrobe so he could settle into the evening. Pulowski looked at him like he was nuts. It's Saturday night, he said. We're going out. Pulowski picked out a shirt from the back of the closet that Mendelbaum had not worn in years. It was poofy and loud, and Pulowski tucked it into Mendelbaum's pants with enough ferocity to cause whiplash. And then, after much hairbrushing, hairspraying, and a generous amount of cologne spritzing, against all sense, Mendelbaum found himself following Pulowski into a taxicab. Where do a couple of single guys go to meet tomatoes? asked Pulowski, leaning into the cab driver's ear. The cabbie looked into the rearview mirror. Mendelbaum could only imagine the sight they made. El Gambino's, said the driver. Chauffeur, I am going to hold you to your word, said Pulowski, massaging the man's shoulder. There better be plenty of hot tomatoes. Please stop talking that way, said Mendelbaum. At the club, 
Pawlowski took charge. Tottering atop a bar stool, he caught the bartender's eye by depositing three quarters of his torso onto the bar. Two screwdrivers, Pulowski grunted. When the bartender brought the drinks over, Mendelbaum withdrew his wallet, which Pulowski batted aside violently enough to sting Mendelbaum's knuckles. Your money's no good here, he said. Rather than loosening him up socially, alcohol always made Mendelbaum melancholic. He watched Pulowski as Pulowski watched the young hipsters, and he found himself feeling deeply for the guy, picturing him, home all alone in that sad basement apartment, sleeping without feather pillow nor wife, making pizza for one around the clock, everything smelling of poodle and tomato sauce. It was enough to make Mendelbaum's chest hurt. It was good he was spending time with him. It was a chance, all these years later, to give something back. Pulowski turned to him. People need people, Pulowski said, and Mendelbaum nodded soulfully, whereupon Pulowski, with sad, imploring eyes, tentatively extended his index finger, and Mendelbaum, with alacrity and tenderness, pulled it. Well, now that we're all full of flirty juice, said Pulowski, I say we hit the dance floor. I don't dance, said Mendelbaum. Janice did, and would often say that Mendelbaum was too inward, unable to, what she called, condescend to music, or for that matter, to happiness. I'll teach you, said Pulowski. Leaping from his chair, he began a coochie-coo dance, wiggling his ample tush and blowing kisses like a toreador. Mendelbaum laughed. It was the first honest laugh he'd had in almost a year. Pulowski grabbed Mendelbaum's wrist and yanked him onto the dance floor. It was a yanking he'd been subjected to all his life, at weddings, bar, and bat mitzvahs, from aunts, girlfriends, his wife. But unlike all those other times, this time, he didn't fight it. He knew Pulowski wouldn't let him win. Pulowski ran out onto the crowded dance floor, tickle fingers wiggling, and Mendelbaum followed behind, tentatively nodding his head in time to what he mistook for the beat. Later that night, setting Blasky up on the couch, they replayed the evening, the flow of screwdrivers, the silly dancing, how noticing a milkshake straw rolling across the bathroom floor, they laughed like it was the funniest thing they'd ever seen. The bartender had got such a kick out of Pulowski, he'd allowed him to dance the Macarena atop the bar. In spite of himself, Mendelbaum had had fun. He shut off the light and leaned in the doorway. How is it my family knows you? he asked. For many years, Pulowski said, dozing off, I was in love with your mother. Then he turned over, farted, and began to snore. Mendelbaum lay in bed and remembered, roly-poly taking him on the bus to see Snow White at the Van Horn Theater when he was six, roly-poly dancing a jig in a McDonald's parking lot, blowing smoke rings, pulling coins from behind his ear. He remembered how Pulowski, even back then, only a head taller than he, had good-naturedly told him to put up his dukes 
and Mendelbaum, uncoordinated and unused to such horseplay, had clocked Pulaski in the nose. He remembered the shocked noise Pulaski had made, his mother rushing in from the kitchen to dab at the blood with a dish towel, Pulaski apologizing all the while for the mess. His mother had lain Pulaski down on the couch to rest, and because of his own shame, Mendelbaum had avoided him the rest of the afternoon. Thinking back on it now, Mendelbaum wondered if Pulaski's friendship had all been for the love of his mother. Had Mendelbaum been something of a pawn in a desperate one-way love affair? In the darkness of the living room, Pulaski was curled up under the blankets. Asleep, he looked even smaller. Mendelbaum touched his shoulder, and Pulaski stirred awake. Mendelbaum wanted to ask many questions, but it all came out at once, as just one thing. Why did you like me? Pulaski sat up and shrugged. I like everybody, he said. That's chubby old roly-poly for you. Calling you roly-poly, Mendelbaum said. I never meant to insult. It's just what my mother always called you. She started calling me that way back in junior high, Pulaski said. That's where I first met her. Mendelbaum could not bring himself to ask anything about all that, for fear Pulaski might call his mother a tomato or such and sour the weekend. So instead, he apologized for waking him and wished him a good night. The next morning, when he went into the living room, the couch was straightened and neat, and Pulaski was gone. That night, Mendelbaum ate leftover pizza while leaning in the living room doorway, when he suddenly felt his legs grow tired. He moved over to the couch to sit for a bit, and found that sitting felt very good, and so he continued to eat, hunched over the coffee table. Somewhere into his second slice, he reached for the remote and turned on the TV. There was nothing good on, but he watched anyway, seated on the couch, eating pizza, watching TV, just like old times. In his therapist's office, Mendelbaum would later try to describe the moment as what he felt in his heart it was, his first breath of new life. But his therapist would shake his head sagely and tell him, not yet. We are absolutely fascinated with the whole principle of remembering. When there's some gathering of people and we say, uh, well, this is a great day, what a wonderful picnic or whatever it is we're having. It's a pity somebody didn't bring a camera. It should have been photographed. You see, one school of religious people say, let it all go, don't be attached. In other words, and they also say, live in the moment. Stop trying to remember everything. Don't linger over memories and treasure memories. That's clinging to life because that memory has got you hooked. It holds you to the past, and it holds you to death. But then there's the other school of thought, you see, quite opposite to this, which says, remember to remember. Hold on to it all. 
On Wiretap today, you heard A Face from the Past and A Clip from a Lecture by Alan Watts. Wiretap is produced by Mira Birdwintonic, Crystal Duhame, and me, Jonathan Goldstein. Tune into Wiretap Saturdays at 3.30 and Thursday evenings at 11.30. You can also hear Wiretap across North America on Sirius XM. Or subscribe to the free podcast at cbc.ca slash wiretap, where you can also download the latest Wiretap ringtone. There better be plenty of hot tomatoes. Let the waiter know you like your ratatouille on the spicy side with every ring of your phone. And Wiretap wants to help you with your moral dilemmas. Have an ethical quandary you're wrestling with? Call our helpline and we'll do our best to help you out during an upcoming episode of our show. That number to call is 1-844-857-0737. Again, that's 1-844-857-0737. Please call us. We want to hear from you. The hope of spring, mirage of loss, a few more things. You left your sorrow dangling. It hangs in air like a school cheer. Bump like notes inside the chords on every wall. Inflections carved deepest lakes and darkest stars. Remember, we were the volunteers. Newness and nothing more. Now it's my rights versus yours. Chances with